welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from MSNBC's Countdown, Counterspin, Rachel Maddow, Radio Nation, and Le Show. On Capitol Hill, it may have looked like lawmakers were debating the policy that put 138,000 American troops in Iraq in the first place. But what really seemed to be under debate was the patriotism of the Democrats now threatening to take back the House in the November elections. The Republican resolution urging the U.S. to stay the course in Iraq, passing easily by a vote of 256 to 153. Never mind that the Iraqi government itself has indicated it is now time for American troops to start heading home. The Associated Press reporting that Iraq's vice president personally asked President Bush to set a timetable for redeployment when he met with him on Tuesday. Funny how Mr. Bush did not seem to mention that at his press conference when he got back. Meanwhile, just one heartbeat away, our own Vice President Dick Cheney turning his war rhetoric up to 11, claiming that the conflict in Iraq has actually prevented further terrorist attacks here in the U.S. It is not surprising that a Democrat might disagree with that. But when that Democrat is a Marine Corps veteran who has spent most of his 32 years in Congress as a traditional hawk, well, it's time to sit up and take notice. Earlier, I had a chance to ask Congressman Jack Murtha about the state of the war in Iraq, beginning with Mr. Cheney's claim that the conflict has actually prevented new attacks on American soil. The thing that's discouraged me so much, and one of the reasons I spoke out, is so much rhetoric and mischaracterization of what's going on. I, I never know what, what the truth is. Uh, they continually say how well things are going, and then I state statistics that show it's not going that well. So I just have no idea the way to measure whether there have been any attacks or not. I don't know of any attacks that have been stopped because of our going into Iraq. There was no terrorism in Iraq at all before we went in, and now it's the heartbed of terrorism. As a matter of fact, the attacks have increased substantially on our troops and on the Iraqi people. So, you know, I, when, when they say something like that, uh, I, I've never seen any backup that would prove that what he's saying is true. So it's more rhetor- uh, rhetorical than something that's actually provable. Well, and, and that's the thing that's so frustrating. It's a mischaracterization, a misrepresentation about what's going on. And, and then you go back, and I say to the staff when they say something like that, give me some proof of something like this. And, mm-hmm. and they can never give me the proof. And so, so it's frustrating as, as it can be when you, when you hear those kind of comments just thrown out. I heard this all day yesterday and all day today, these kind of things, not that particular comment, but things like that. Congressman, after initially supporting the war, you now advocate redeployment. The sooner, the better. Now, we have learned that the Iraqi vice president asked President Bush to set an actual timetable for withdrawal. What's your reaction to that? Brian, I, I stated on the floor that I'd read that article, and, and not only the vice president, but the president of Iraq confirmed that he agreed with, with the vice president. Eighty percent of the Iraqis in the latest poll we have, which is a couple months old, want us out of there. Forty-seven percent of the Iraqis say it's all right to kill Americans. And then I heard a disconcerting story that, that uh, some of the Iraqis, that they're going to give amnesty to the people that killed Americans. Now they said they fired the guy, but it shows you how important it is to, to change 
changed direction in Iraq. Uh, Reagan changed direction in Beirut. Uh, uh, Clinton changed direction in Somalia. We need to change direction. And, and they can't seem to get it. And, and our troops are caught in a civil war. That's the thing that's so distressing to me. I go to the hospitals almost every week, and I see the results of the, the explosive devices that they're using. And it's just frustrating to me that they, they say, we're fighting. We're not fighting it. The troops are fighting it. They're wearing 70 pounds of armor, and, and they're inside armored vehicles. We're not air-conditioned. They're out there every day looking for IEDs. 42% of them don't even know what their mission is. So this is frustrating, uh, this mischaracterization of what's going on. We're not doing the fighting. They're doing the fighting. We're proud of them. And, and I, every time I go to the hospital, I'm inspired by them. But that's not the point. The point is, it's not going well, and they won't admit it. Republican Senator Lamar Alexander, for one, likening the granting of amnesty to insurgents to efforts that earned Nelson Mandela a Nobel Prize. Is letting insurgents who've killed American troops go free the next step toward a functioning democracy in Iraq? Brian, I cannot imagine any American endorsing the fact that there would be amnesty. We don't want to give amnesty to illegal aliens or illegal immigrants, let alone to people who killed Americans. And this is the thing I've been talking about. 42% of the Iraqis think it's all right to kill Americans, and, and yet they're going to give them amnesty? And so when they say amnesty, that's absolutely outrageous. I cannot imagine a senator making that kind of a statement. Congressman, let's talk about some of the debate we've been listening to over the past couple of days. The House, of course, as you already know today, rejecting a timetable for redeployment after a very partisan debate that didn't seem really to actually debate the administration's policy in Iraq, merely painting Democrats as weaklings. Yeah, I think that was that apparently was, was the reason they introduced this resolution to try to show that anybody that voted against a resolution which supported the president's policy, which is an open-ended policy. There's no policy. It's, it's stay there and pay, and, and pay a heavy price in, in personnel and in people, in, in families, and, and, of course, $450 billion a year we spent there, $300 million a, a day we're spending in Iraq. So, so we're staying and we're paying. What I'm saying is redeploy and be prepared uh, to, 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 uh, to go back into the country, be ready, redeploy and be ready is what I've been saying. And, and I'm convinced that uh, we can do everything from outside the country. I, I think we have become the enemy. We're the occupiers. At one time, we were welcome as liberators. This has been uh, an incredibly sad week, uh, having passed the milestone of 2,500 Americans in uniform killed. Sir, on Thursday, the White House said that while painful, 2,500 is a number. That was the quote. 2,500, it's a number suggesting that these are sort of benchmarks that are set by, by the media to sort of perhaps fan the political flames. What, 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 is, what is your opinion about that when, when, when the White House says it's, it's a number? I'll tell you, that breaks my heart. Uh, I go to visit the hospital almost every week, and I see these young folks have been blown apart. I've had 13 people killed from my congressional district, and I've talked to the wives uh, of two of them who, who uh, uh, their husbands were killed early on. Uh, it, it, everyone is an individual death. Everyone is, is, is precious to that family. It's not getting better, and our troops have become the target, and, and we, the incidents have increased substantially. The number of insurgents have gone from a couple hundred up to 20,000, and, and so uh, we've been over there all that time. So how can you say it's getting better? And that's the thing that's been frustrating and the thing that I've been talking about. Sir, it, it's, it is inarguable that, that there is a value to having been in combat, and, and many in this administration simply have not been in combat. I mean, do you think that this has affected the prosecution of this war? 
I, I don't know if it's, it's affected the prosecution, but it certainly affects the way they look at it. When they say it's just numbers, that leads me to believe that it has. Uh, the combat situation makes uh, your buddies or your family, uh, you, you learn to live with them uh, the whole time that you're there. And when you're out in the field uh, uh, for a period of time, you, you get to depend on them. And, and you feel every time one of them is hurt. So uh, I think there is something to be said about knowing what goes on in the ground, knowing the, the pain, knowing the, the boredom, knowing the, the intensity. And this is one of the most intense experiences I think I've ever known about, as much as I've read the history of World War One and the Civil War and, and World War Two, they go out every day and they don't know whether they're going to lose an arm, they're going to lose a leg, their, their friend's going to be killed, or they're going to be killed by an explosive device. And and so the, the stress gets to be tremendous on the, on these young people. And 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 they, I had a young sergeant call me when I say young, he, he's retiring after 24 years in the Special Forces. He said, "We stand around a television and watch you because you're speaking for us." These guys sitting on their fat back. Backsides in Washington, he didn't say that. He said, these guys sitting in Washington, their air-conditioned office, are not speaking for us. You're speaking for us. Now, that's only one sergeant. But but he felt very strongly that I understood what was going on out there, and I would hope that I'm portraying it accurately. Let me ask you about that. You, you, you're always speaking to soldiers, and I want to know, is that anecdotal, or do you, how many soldiers, or how many in the Pentagon, speak to you regularly, well, daily, and say, Congressman, you're speaking for us, thank you. Is it just a, is it, how would you quantify it? Well, I don't know how you could quantify it, but I talk to them all the time. They, they don't, the general officers obviously are very careful about what they say, but, but uh, as I said, General Pace said we can't win this militarily. Uh, all, all the general officers know that. You cannot win a guerrilla war militarily. It has to be won diplomatically. The Iraqis are the only ones who can win this war. And I'm convinced that uh, until we redeploy, we're going to be the enemy. And, and we're the occupiers. And we're, we're, we're actually recruiting uh, a terrorist uh, in, into Iraq. Uh, the only people that want us in Iraq is Al-Qaeda and uh, North Korea, Iran. Uh, Russia and, and China because we're depleting our financial resources and our human resources so uh, there's no question in my mind in the end and I and I predict before the end of this year you'll see substantial redeployments uh, because the Iraqis if they've already said it and you remember the Prime Minister came here the interim Prime Minister and he said we want you out of here and and uh, they they covered up they said oh his words he didn't mean this you know that kind of stuff so I'm convinced by the end of the year you'll see a redeploy uh, before the end of the year you'll before the election you'll see a redeployment um, in, in in yesterday's floor debate uh, Congressman Louis Gohmert of, of Texas attacked you personally personally for your position on the war in Iraq thank God for his ministering to grieving families but thank God he was not here and prevailed after the bloodbaths at Normandy and then the Pacific or we would be here speaking Japanese or German thank you well, I asked the speaker was a gentleman at either of those locations was a gentleman either at Normandy or any of those locations Gentlemen, you, you want to know which locations? Yeah. Normandy was a horrible bloodbath. I say, were you there? Oh, no, I was. Were you in Vietnam? Uh, no, sir, I wasn't. Were you in Iraq? No. Oh, I've been over there. I haven't been fighting. Spanish oh. Boots on the ground? And I do admire the gentleman's compassion, and I do appreciate, well, appreciate all that he has done for our wounded. He has done a great service. I appreciate and it. you, Mr. Murphy. Thank, Thank you, you for your work. Yeah, this this happens every once in a while. They get carried away over there. But does that, let me ask you something. 
does that have a place in a debate on something at this point, at this stage in the war? You, you know, what, what I say is that, that I'm, I'm debating the policy. Uh, you know, it's nothing personal. It's not that I don't like George Bush. Or, matter of fact, I consider Cheney a friend who I worked with when he was Secretary of Defense, and I was Chairman of the, of the Defense Secretary of Appropriations. But, but these guys have a tendency, rather than answer my suggestions substantively, they answer them rhetorically. And, and they give these kind of answers that uh, make no sense at all. Does that infuriate you? Does it bother you when, when someone says to you that, that this whole country would be talking, speaking in the language of Japanese if, if we had yeah. listened to folks like you? Yeah, I do get upset. And I, and I told him uh, in no uncertain terms that uh, one of them said something about Normandy. He said that, that uh, if, if, you, mm -hmm. uh, if you had my position, we wouldn't have gone in Normandy. That's ridiculous. My dad and three of his brothers served in World War II. Three of my brothers were in the Marine Corps. I mean, we know something about this stuff. If you disagree with the policy of Theodore Roosevelt said, you have an obligation. I have an obligation as a member of Congress. When I disagree, it would be treasonous not to say something, Theodore Roosevelt said. And I say the same thing. It's my obligation to speak out when I disagree with the policy. If somebody to get up and say something like that. They're reading something somebody gave them. Mm -hmm. Congressman, the charge is repeated again this week by Karl Rove. Many are scratching their heads. Some are looking at their history books. But it's about the charge that Democrats are cutting and running. Who cut and ran? Who is that? Who is you know exactly is advocating yeah. the strategy to cut and run? That's the question. No one seems to be able to really answer. Who's well, cutting and running? Yeah. Well, it's just it's a slogan. That's all. Here's a guy sitting on his fat backside in an air-conditioned office talking about the troops. He doesn't have a clue what's going on in Iraq. He doesn't have a clue that they have 70 pounds of armor that they're inside 130-degree temperature inside an armored vehicle. And every day they go out, every convoy is hit by by explosive devices. And their mission is to find these explosive devices so they can protect the convoys against them. I mean, that's just a slogan. The slogan, it stay the course is a slogan. There's no plan. I'm saying give us a plan. Somebody's got to make some sense out of this thing and redeploy our troops. I'm convinced as quickly as is practical and let the Iraqis fight this out among themselves. Finally, in case you haven't noticed, the media are insisting that George W. Bush is on a roll, especially when it comes to the Iraq war. And given his new momentum, some outlets are questioning whether Democrats are making a huge mistake by advocating a timetable for the withdrawal of U.S. troops. This narrative has proved irresistible for the New York Times, where three stories over two days have taken up the theme. Republicans in Congress, the paper reported on June 13th, are scheduling several votes on Iraq that are, quote, intended to force Democrats to take a stand on setting a date for the withdrawal of American troops, a divisive issue, close quote. The next day, the contrast between Bush's quick visit to Iraq and the Democrats foolishly debating Iraq policy was front and center. As one story began, quote, at the moment that the White House is again trying to cast them as weak on national security, Democrats are debating their stance on the war in Iraq with new intensity, close quote. The Times reiterated that setting a deadline for troop withdrawal, quote, could create a hard choice for Democrats in the Senate, antagonize the party's anti-war base, or provide fodder for Republican attacks, close quote. But by most available measures, including the New York Times' own polling, these stories have it precisely backwards. 
A New York Times poll from last month found 60% support for setting a timetable for withdrawal of U.S. troops. When reporters take one side of the debate, the majority by some counts, and treat it as a dangerously marginal opinion, well, that's precisely how the White House would like it to be portrayed. Second story on the front page today involves going back in time twice. First trip back in time is to November of last year. You might remember back in late November, the mystery train videos surfacing. You remember this? Video clips posted on a website used by employees of a company called Aegis, A-E-G-I-S, which is the largest single security contract, uh, Aegis is, uh, of any company working in Iraq. A British company with employees from everywhere. They're getting 300 million bucks from the Pentagon for security work in Iraq. Now, the mystery train video showed unknown contractors shooting a machine gun out the back window of a moving SUV on an Iraqi highway, and they were shooting at other cars behind it on the highway, just shooting this machine gun at civilian vehicles. And then you'd see the cars veer off to the side of the road and stop. It's very unnerving, made all the more so because the sound of the video clips was set to Elvis Presley's Mystery Train. That clack, clack, clack is machine gun fire. You can hear them shooting. You can also at some point hear them uh, hear them laughing and joking around. This clip was, was played on my show at the time. This, this news story broke in November. It did get a bit of attention, a bit of criticism even from within Congress. It got a ton of airplay on Arab language TV. The military said it would investigate. And it seems like an investigatable thing. You can hear them laughing and joking around. The cars they're shooting at just seem to randomly be in their line of fire without posing any threat that you can tell from the video. What happens, you know, when when you have a murder on a video, basically, it's basically a trophy video of apparently killing or at least shooting at civilians. In that case, in Iraq, what happens to contractors who take a video like that, who, who behave like that? There ought to be an investigation. That was back in November. Now we're going to take our second trip back in time now. And this one is a little shorter. We're only going back in time to April, just a few months ago. President Bush was speaking at Johns Hopkins University. And you might remember uh, this question from the audience. He was utterly stumped by a question from a Johns Hopkins student. Thank you, Mr. President. It's an honor to have you here. I'm a first-year student in South Asia Studies. Uh, My question is is in regards to private military contractors. The Uniform Code of Military Justice does not apply to these contractors in Iraq. I asked your Secretary of Defense a couple months ago what law governs their actions. Uh, I was going to ask him. Go ahead. You can already tell that Bush is in trouble here. She's asking this very serious question, and he's joking around with her already. You can already tell his answer is going to be a little bit of a disaster. Remember, this was back in April. Uh, The student presses on with her question. Mr. President, how do you propose to bring private military contractors under a system of law? Yeah, I appreciate that very much. I wasn't kidding. (laughs) <laughs> I, I was going to pick up the phone and say, Mr. Secretary, i got an interesting question. 
This is what delegation... I don't mean to be dodging the question, although it's kind of convenient in this case, but never... <laughs> I really will. I'm going to call the secretary and say, you brought up a very valid question, and what are we doing about it? Is That's how I work. I'm... Uh, um, thanks. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Just left the... That's how we left it. And if the president ever talked to Donald Rumsfeld about this problem, or if he ever got back to that first-year Johns Hopkins student about the answer to this question, about what law governs military contractors in Iraq, I've never heard about it. And the student is right in her question. There are more than 25,000 private security contractors working in Iraq. They're all armed. They're all at least occasionally shooting at people, right? What happens if a, a security contractor in Iraq tweaks out and, and one of them kills another one of them? Or what if one of them rapes somebody? Or what if they massacre civilians? What, what happens when they start shooting machine guns out of the back of moving SUVs at random civilian vehicles on Iraqi highways for fun and then posting videos of it online set to Elvis Presley music? What happens? We're coming back to the, president, the, the present now. The military on Saturday very, very quietly announced the end of its investigation into the mystery train videos. They announced that they had looked into the question of, quote, if there was any potential criminality that falls within the investigative purview of the Army's Criminal Investigative Division, end quote. And what do you know? There is nothing in those videos, apparently, that falls within the military's investigative purview. Because, of course, they're, they're contractors. This is the privatized part of the war, right? These, car, these contractors aren't military. So the military disowns them in terms of accountability when these guys do something wrong. And, and when Paul Medal of Freedom Bremer, remember Mr. Timberland's in the suit? When Paul Bremer was running the coalition provisional authority in Iraq after we invaded, Paul Bremer forced an agreement on the Iraqi government that makes it impossible for the Iraqis to prosecute any security contractors for anything. They are immune, totally immune, under Iraqi law. And the United States military will not investigate them under the Code of Military Justice. So who exactly is supposed to respond when contractors in Iraq, working on the dime of the U.S. taxpayer through Pentagon contracts, who exactly is supposed to respond if they do anything illegal? The investigation is closed in the mystery train videos. End of case. It's not that they did nothing wrong. The finding was that doing something wrong can't be punished if you're a private contractor in Iraq. They are officially 100% above the law, which is how we, the, the big benevolent Western invading power here, which is how we're teaching those backward Iraqis about democracy and accountability and the rule of law. Thank God they have us, huh? You guys take care of our 25,000 armed security contractors. And remember, there's no law that applies to them.
with us, U.S. Army First Lieutenant Aaron Watada. Now, this Wednesday, Aaron Watada publicly announced at a press conference that he intended to refuse any order to participate in the Iraq war. His public statement against the war in Iraq was different to others because he didn't apply for conscientious objector status. Instead... Lieutenant Watata told the world that his official reason for not participating in the war, not wanting to go back to Iraq, was based on his belief that any order to participate in this particular war would be an illegal order because he believes the war is illegal. He was and is putting the military occupation of Iraq on trial. Just one day later, on June 8th, his commanding officer moved to prosecute him for protected speech because of his comments on the Iraq war. He joins us now by phone. First Lieutenant Aaron Watada, welcome to Radio Nation. Thank you, Laura. Glad to have you with us. Tell us a little bit right now about where you are as we speak to you and the situation that you're in this evening. Um, well, basically right now, as uh, everybody probably knows, I made a public statement stating my beliefs and also that it's my obligation to follow the Constitution, to obey only lawful orders. And uh, from that, there's been, a, I guess, as you can probably imagine, there's been a lot of um, hostility towards me on base. Uh, most of it is is uh, not overt. Um, and also I've been notified by my commanders that there's going to be an investigation into some comments I made. Uh, specifically regarding the administration and uh, the deception of the American people. And uh, they have accused me of making disloyal and disrespectful statements. So as of this time, there's still an investigation, but no charges have been made yet. And are we speaking to you at Fort Lewis base right now? No, uh, I'm at home off base. What are your next moves? Basically, my next move is... I think um, when I came out publicly uh, into the limelight and stated my intent and my beliefs, there have been people who have demonized me and there have been people who applauded me. And I, I am eternally grateful for those who support me. But I think the issue that I want people to focus on, the issue that I will try to get out uh, in the next few weeks, um, unless I'm incarcerated in that time, is to get the word out that this war is illegal and that we... Um, as Americans, all the people in this country need to get out and evaluate why we are in Iraq and the reasons why we went there. And if it is indeed illegal, it is our duty as a people to not have the soldiers participate in something that is a crime. And it is also a duty for all the soldiers um, when they took their oath to not participate in something that is a crime. Let's talk about how you came to that conclusion. Kofi Annan, Secretary General of the United Nations, has called this an illegal war. But apart from that, there hasn't been any definition or declaration of this war as illegal by any legal body. Uh, by what, on what grounds do you assert that this is an illegal war? Based on the U.N. Charter, which bars any members belonging to the U.N. Um, from engaging in a war of aggression. And a war of aggression is defined as any war... That is not out of uh, self-defense. Self-defense meaning there is a clear and imminent threat, and or if it is a war sanctioned by unanimous vote by the Security Council, um, that is one. And I think there are. Well, I know there were no reasons, um, according to those guidelines, for invading Iraq. 
Um, also, after World War II, there were the Nuremberg uh, Tribunal Charters, and those things said the same. It was um, any war is not a war out of self-defense. It's considered a war of aggression and a war um, against the peace, and it is therefore illegal, and any member taking part in it or preparing for it will be culpable in that crime as well. Mm. I can say that I did thorough research, as it is my responsibility as an officer into why we're there and the things that we're also doing now, and, and both the invasion and the occupation are illegal because of the, the acts that we're committing and that have, we have committed. Mm. We're talking with First Lieutenant Aaron Watada, who announced publicly that he will not be going to Iraq when his unit deploys to that country later this month. The debate around your declaration this week has included uh, statements from the military. One that I heard on a talk radio program as I was driving through uh, Washington State on Wednesday uh, was to the effect that while... Officers like yourself do not give up their rights of free speech when they join the service. They are expected to bring their concerns to their commanders uh, before they go public with allegations about a war in which U.S. forces are engaged. Are there mechanisms for you to raise these concerns inside the military? And are there options for those who hold the opinion that you hold to do something other than deploy if they believe the war is wrong? As you can probably imagine, uh, First Lieutenant, probably really low on the totem pole in terms of raising issues uh, and awareness to the highest levels of the chain of command, those who make policy, uh, why we're there and what we're doing there in that country, in Iraq. Um, so, no, I, I raised awareness, I believe, in, um, in my letter of resignation, stating that what we're doing there is wrong and criminal and that I could not take part in it and I would rather resign my commission out of protest than be forced to disobey uh, an order, whether it be lawful or unlawful. And so, no, I think uh, the Army, uh, the government, the administration doesn't really care what anybody in the military has to say. Um, they have made the decision from the top, and you will go and you will execute. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter whether you believe anything that we're doing is illegal. Uh, You've said in interviews believe, that you felt that you were betrayed. Can you explain that? Uh, in some in some more of my research and the things that have come out from um, various former officials, uh, from government agencies, non-governmental agencies, has led me to the belief, and it's convinced me, that this government waged a war of deception on the American people, on the world, and also members of Congress. And I believe that the authorization of force that Congress granted the president uh, would never have been made if the, the arguments about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction and ties to al-Qaeda 9-11 were not uh, guaranteed by members of the administration um, many, many times and in front of the United Nations. And I think up to this point and even long before, uh, it's been proven that the many claims they made were false. And it was not not bad intelligence. Um, it was intentionally manipulated intelligence uh, to fit a policy that was made long before 9-11, long before uh, any plans were drawn up for the 2003 invasion. First Lieutenant Aaron Watata, when you asked for permission to resign your commission, what happened? I was basically met with uh, hostility and... Um, dismay over as if I was the only one in this world who could have ever conceive that what we're doing over there was wrong. 
that those responsible for it were not accountable. I was immediately tried to be convinced of why we're there and what we're doing was the right thing and how many people we're helping and that I had a duty and an obligation, as was, as was my commitment, to go with these troops that I trained with over to Iraq. And that was basically it. Um, I wasn't given any uh, time or opportunity to, to air more of my grievances or um, discuss my issue with anyone higher than my immediate commander. What is at stake for you now? You're, you're facing a court-martial or you could be, is that right? Correct. And what could come of that if you were found guilty of, what is this, protected speech? Basically, protected speech, um, if, if the investigation recommends that, I, um, that I'm guilty, they will probably issue um, non-judicial punishment. Uh, I've been advised not to accept that by my legal counsel. And most likely they will compound those charges with the, the time that I will be most likely charged for disobeying uh, lawful order, for not getting on the plane deploying to Iraq. And what kind of penalty could that bring? That penalty could be combined with missing movement by design. Uh, I could see anywhere from two to five years, maybe more, of imprisonment. In a military stockade, um, dishonorable discharge, loss of all pay and allowances, and they could find me. A lot of the people that we've spoken to who talk about their service say that what goes through their heads when they decide to resist in whatever way, either as conscientious objectors or like yourself, is that somebody will go in their place to Iraq. Uh, are you concerned about that? You know, it was it was definitely um, a heart wrenching decision to make, knowing that you train with these men, you you're you're practically brothers with them. You train, you live with them for a year. Um, you know their ins and outs, their families, their problems. Um, but then you have to make this decision, which is a higher you answer to a higher power um, than your commander in chief, uh, and that is to follow the Constitution, of which you took an oath to. Um, to protect and defend the laws of our country against all enemies, even those within our own country. And I felt that I could better support my troops, my soldiers, as a leader, better support them instead of going over there and you know, dropping more bombs and artillery and causing more death and destruction. I could better support them by speaking out against the wrongdoings within our government to hold those accountable, to set the example. That we even if you're in, I'm sorry. What was the question? Even if you're incarcerated for the two years that you might be facing, or more. Yes, it is definitely the sacrifice uh, that all members of the military make when they when they sign up. It's to sacrifice everything in the name of protecting um, all we hold dear as Americans, meaning the principles of democracy and freedom. What kind of response have you gotten? Your father's been supporting you. That must be very moving to you. What support has surprised you? I don't know if it surprises so much as in, um, it, well, it is surprising, but expected in that there are several soldiers um, that have approached me on post, and they have shaken my hand. Um, one sergeant came up to me and said that uh, he believes, like I do, uh, the things that I'm saying, and to, to just keep your head up, stay strong. Uh, I received several emails from members of the military Officers, too. Officers that are uh, higher ranking than I am, saying that you are doing the right thing, you are you're standing up for what you believe, 
um, and that it is time for us to do something. Waiting for the big fall to take us off. Quiet nights and desperate love. We need it all. Ladies and gentlemen, we got to stop paying attention to the media and start paying attention to our own government officials who can tell us the good news about Iraq. Here, for example, is U.S. Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad in a confidential cable to the State Department back in Washington uh, from about a month ago, made public this week in the Washington Post to virtually no notice by anybody else in the media. The good news from our own ambassador, Reporting back to the State Department, quote, crime in Iraq is rated as critical and will continue to get worse for the foreseeable future. Crime, terrorism and warfare are a significant threat in all parts of Iraq. The U.S. Department of State continues to strongly warn U.S. citizens against travel to Iraq, which remains very dangerous. Remnants of the former regime, transnational terrorists, criminal elements, and numerous insurgent groups remain active. Attacks against military and civilian targets continue throughout the country, including inside the Green Zone. Planned and random killings are common, as are kidnappings for ransom and political reasons. Overall security in Iraq is worsening, continues the U.S. ambassador, reporting confidentially to the State Department in Washington. With kidnapping by criminal gangs and insurgents a particular problem, these bold, well-equipped, and sophisticated groups, gangs, are terrorizing businessmen and contractors in addition to the easy-to-nab odd journalists. Foreigners of all walks of life have been kidnapped and murdered. No one is immune. Outspoken critics of the war who painted themselves as allies of the insurgency have been kidnapped, mistakenly believing that by aligning themselves with the hostage-takers they could guarantee themselves an exemption from being targeted. A stable government may be the first step in a reduction in political violence, but for now, armed militia loyal to various non-governmental entities have limited to extensive control of parts of Baghdad and some cities in Iraq. The local police are poorly trained, poorly equipped, and corrupt, Americans have in the past called for and received assistance in emergencies from the U.S. military, but the response time has been measured in hours, not minutes. The good news from Iraq, thanks to our own ambassador, ladies and gentlemen, is I don't believe the media. Believe our guy. Thanks for listening, everybody. I've had a little bit of a mixed day today. I thought I would share a couple of these things with you. First, I wake up this morning, and um, I had this email, and this this is basically this is the type of hate mail I get. This is you know your standard run the mill, foaming at the mouth, angry as all get out kind of kind of mail that I get. And this is from Brian. He writes, you know, I was just thinking this morning about how much I love your music choices for Best of the Left. And I was actually thinking that the Michael Andrews and Gary Jules version of Mad World from Donnie Darko would be a perfect fit. And then you beat me to the punch before I could email you and include it in Hope in the Darkness. Grrr, he writes. 
you know, that that type of animosity and, and anger is just unnecessary. You know, there's enough hate in the world that, you know, just because you don't get your way, you don't have to go throw in a fit, you know, slinging mud through the internet, you know, so frustrating. And if you don't know what he's talking about, it's uh, this song, um, Mad World, It's it's a remix of it, and... Here, I'll play it right now. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces, bright and early for their daily races, going nowhere, going nowhere. Their tears are filling up no expression, no expression. Hide my head, I wanna drown my soul. So there you go. Now you know what he's talking about. It's it's really just no cause for that type of language, sir. Now on the complete flip side from that, uh, I had the pleasure of listening to the most recent edition of Godless Kinzer's podcast called Watch It Burn. Many of you have heard of it or heard it because I've talked about it in the past, but I know I'm always getting new listeners, so there's definitely some of you who don't don't know what I'm talking about. And Godless Kinzer is a soldier in Iraq, and he's doing a podcast uh, which is fantastic. I fully encourage you to take a look at that. Uh, he is a member of the Progressive Podcast Network found at newmediarevolution.org. Uh, he does a much better job of remembering to promote that than I do. But that's, once again, if you don't know what I'm talking about in that case, uh, you can go back and listen to my show titled Rights and Revolutions. That's when I announced the beginning of the network, and you can get some details on what exactly that is. Uh, but basically, we've, we've set up a network of progressive podcasts, and he is a member of that. And so when I announced the network, I, I, I have no idea what exactly I said, but I feel like I said something to the effect of... Uh, you know, well, this is a way for us to all get together and promote each other, and it'll just be one giant orgy of good feelings and, you know, progressive values and, and people helping each other out. Because that, that's the basic idea. Well, Kinzer, in his most recent episode, I believe it was episode 13, really took that pretty much literally because by the end of the show, uh, I really felt like I'd just been fellated. And as proper, you know, customs and etiquette go in a civilized society, when you get fellated, you can't just ignore that and without some kind of reciprocal action. So that's what I'm doing right now. I just need to remind everybody, and for new listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, 
go to uh, godlesskinzer.com, check out his podcast. He's doing it from Iraq, and he's a total badass. He did have one other announcement uh, on on that show that's worth noting. So uh, for all of you who even know who he is, uh, well, I mean, if you know who he is, you're probably listening to his show, and so you, you heard the announcement anyways, but I feel obligated to talk about it for just a minute. Uh, he just talked a little bit about how his podcast is going up for review. You know, since he's in the military, they can kind of control what he says and does while he's on duty or uh, deployed at least. And so there's the possibility, you know, he, he kind of played it down, but uh, he, he always he, he says that there's always the distinct possibility that every show he does might be his last because you just never really know when they're going to shut him down. So uh, if, if you hadn't heard that yet, go check it out. If you want to support him in any way, you know, he he's uh, always asking for donations, which are greatly appreciated. You can do that through his website. But really just send him your positive thoughts and kind emails, and I'm sure he would appreciate that. And so this is just my way of uh, saying thank you for the kind plug that he gave me on his most recent show. So there you go. Some love, some hate. It all evens out in the end. As for you, you can send me your love or hate uh, through the website uh, bestoftheleftpodcast.com or email direct to hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. There's also lots of ways that you can support me and my show on the website, almost all of them non-monetary, although there is a tip jar if you feel so inclined. Uh, Things that I like for people to do just because I get a kick out of it, join me on my Frapper map. I'd just like to see where people are, Uh, especially if you're living abroad, because I'm fairly international, I think, but I know that there's some of you living outside of the United States who aren't on the map, and I would I would love to see really how far I'm reaching. You can join me uh, similarly on MySpace and, you know, join my group of friends and bring your whole, whole group of friends with you and show them my show and introduce them to it. Just help uh, give me a little bit of publicity in that way and then there's this this other thing that I've kind of I mentioned once recently and then have forgotten to mention it again or mostly forgotten at least there is a survey that I would love for you to take it's on the website it says take the survey or something to that effect it's pretty cut and dry and um, basically what happens is if the event ever came about that I was able to make any money with this podcast, or uh, m- more importantly, really, the network, the Progressive Podcast Network, uh, we're considering all of our options for how to raise a little bit of money for that. Uh, more to come on that later. Uh, but the, those surveys help in that regard. And even more importantly than helping me either sell advertising or any type of icky stuff like that, 
I real I love to hear what you guys have to say on those surveys. So I last time I got an email with the with that type of information, I got a big kick out of it. So all of that, best of the left podcast.com. Anything you've got to tell me, send me. Uh, if you have suggestions for music, then you better get them in or I'll beat you to it because I'm intuitive that way, I guess. That's going to be it for tonight. Have a good one, everybody.